0: roan mountain radio episode 84 welcome to roan mountain radio i'm ken turner this is a podcast about roan mountain the jewel of the southern appalachian mountains always located on the border of north carolina and tennessee Coming up is the 60th Annual Spring Naturalist Rally. That will be April 27, 28, and 29 of 2018. The Saturday evening speaker is Dr. Kevin Hammond, who will join us in just a minute. But first, let's look at the Friends of friendsofroanemountain.org if you want to get registration information, the brochure on the list of hikes, and Larry, the director of the rally, has a great list of hikes each Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon and even after dinner on Saturday, hikes on Sunday, it's a big, big time to be on the mountain. For more information, go to mountain.org and abbreviate mountain as M-T-N. That's Mountain.org or you can go to roanemountainradio.com. Look for episode 84. There'll be links to all of the information below the Okay, now Dr. Kevin Hammond is a biology professor at Virginia Highlands Community College in Abingdon, and he is a very well-known expert in salamanders, especially the salamanders of the southern Appalachian region. I think we're all fascinated by the salamanders that we encounter along the trails on Roan Mountain, but how much do we really know about them? Do we know about their history? Do we know about their territory range? I never thought about how far a salamander roams, but now I know. And what about their lifespan? These and many other fascinating facts about salamanders. Dr. Hammond will present in this preview of his presentation. Now, he'll be speaking Saturday evening at the Spring Naturalist Rally, so get your registration in for that, and you'll get to learn more about the salamanders. Plus, I'm going to call it a little special event after his presentation. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kevin Hammond. Kevin, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this afternoon. I know salamanders are really popular with our nature hikes and especially with the kids hikes. I think people just really are interested in knowing more about them, why they're such a a fascinating creature. And your program, The Future of Appalachian Salamanders, What the Past Tells Us, kind of leads me in a different direction. Can you tell us a little more about that
1: and why? Sure, sure. We know it's uh, appreciate you, you speaking with me today, and, and you're right. It's, it, I had a, a good friend that was a, a prominent herpetologist, and he used to say the, uh, the best people that end up being herpetologists are kids that never grow up. So you're <laughs> right. There is kind of a natural draw with, with young people and salamanders, and, and many of us, as we continue to age, still enjoy those. The southern Appalachian Mountains are the world' center of diversity for these animals. Now, there's areas of, of South America that as new species are being, uh, Central America as new species are being described, that are becoming uh, um, you know quite rich too. But, but our area has always been basically known as, as the center of diversity. In fact, uh, some folks even called it herpetological holy ground because so many species were described right in our immediate area. That the stretch really from White Top Mountain in Virginia to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which would include Roan Mountain, Uh, It just has an unbelievable diversity. The one thing that's kind of neat about these animals is many of them are lungless, so they're exchanging gas through their skin. And because of that, they need to be in really cool uh, and moist environments to facilitate that, that gas exchange, which makes the Appalachian Mountains the perfect home for them. Well, because they're exchanging gas to their skin, the premise has always been that toxins or other things they could be exposed to in the environment could potentially be having a negative impact on them. And one of the things that that I've been working on, my students have been helping, is really trying to understand how our populations are, are changing. And to do that, we've used historical data sets. A lot of our work that's occurred just not very far from Own Mountain on, on White Top Mountain, we did just that. We looked at the work of, of Jim Oregon, who ran these uh, transects uh, in the late 1950s. And then I came back and re-ran them in the last 8 to 10 years. So that's, been, that's allowed us to see how things have changed. And then we're also looking at, at things and, and trying to model what might occur as the planet begins to warm, what's happening along the ways of, of pollution in the sense of uh, atmospheric deposition. Many, many of the high peaks in the Appalachian Mountains are, are prone to experience some form of pollution with with atmospheric deposition. And we're really kind of interested in in mercury and uh, what those levels might be in some of these salamanders. So we're using some of this past work to kind of to see where we've uh, where we've where we've changed, and now we're trying to model what might be occurring into the future.
0: Okay, now White Top Mountain. That can't imagine that's changed a whole lot. Does that give you a clear snapshot of the past
1: 70 years? It, it does actually, and you know, on clear days we can see Roan Mountain from from White Top. It does, and we've been able able to answer a few questions. But as with most research, what's happened is it's caused us to then ask many other questions. Some things are very intuitive. You know, you would expect a little bit of warming that's caused animals to shift maybe higher up on on the mountain. Then other things, we're seeing animals like the weller salamander that occurs on Roan Mountain. It's actually uh, uh, moved downward uh, in the last 50, 60 years. So that's a little counterintuitive. You would think an animal that's known to live in the spruce fir forest, really, really cool temperatures. Why would it be moving down? And We've then began to look at other questions of competition and and potentially even habitat and and how the forest is maturing and because of that that actually can can cool provide a cooling effect to the the forest floor so it, it has been interesting some things are are doing uh, you know what we would expect but then other things are not and. In- kind of opening the door to, to future research for us.
0: You lead your classes out into the woods and on the mountains hunting these. What's your season for your salamander expeditions? Well,
1: you know, it it really, um, everything we do is, is temperature dependent. And uh, in the last few years, that's becoming even more of a challenge, especially this year as we'll have a 70- you know, to 80-degree day followed by a 30-degree day with, with snow. But typically, we will start in mid-April, so in the next few days, and we normally run till Halloween, October 31st. Normally, by the end of October, we've reached at White Top, which, again, the conditions on Roan Mountain are very similar. We've started to reach freezing conditions, and, uh, and those freezing conditions are enough to cause the animals to move into their winter dormancy.
0: That's a whole another idea of study there. How do these fragile little moisture-seeking things survive the harsh winters
1: up on the mountain? Right. You know, well, the ones uh, the ones that are in springs and seeps and aquatic areas, many of those will stay active uh, almost year-round, and the more terrestrial ones will. Uh, they go deep. We we believe pretty far under the surface, and typically will spend the winter there. Some of these animals we've never seen their nest or their eggs. Oh, so we wow. assume that those eggs, yeah, you know everybody thinks you have to, get, you have to go to the tropics to d- discover new things, and right. there's so much we still don't know about these animals. But we're assuming that certain species, their eggs are laid underground, and in most cases, we feel that the newly hatched juveniles probably spend the first year of their life even underground before they come up to the surface.
0: Wow, I did not know that. And so the the holy ground for salamanders being the southern Appalachians. Any real idea of the numbers of different species?
1: Oh, wow. You know, on, on, for instance, on White Top Mountain, uh, we have 15 members within the family Plethodonidae, maybe 16. There's there's potentially a new species that might be described from from there, maybe. the White Top Mountain itself has six members of just the genus Plethodon In the Smokies, you you can get approximately 31, 32 species of salamanders that are there. So again, small areas, it's phenomenal what we get. And the reason we have that is, you know, it's the same thing we see with birds, same thing we see with wildflowers. It's that change in elevation. And it basically creates this climate climatic niche change. And we can start at the bottom at low elevations of mountains like Roan Mountain or in the Smokies or on White Top. And as we move up, you know, you start to transition into northern hardwood forest where you have different flora and different birds that are nesting there. You also have different salamanders that are there. And then as we move up to the spruce fir, we start to have again species that are specific to those areas. And then we have generalists that you can find, you know, from the very top of of Roan Mountain all the way to the bottom of Roan Mountain.
0: Huh? Then wonder why that is.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that these climatic niches—they're—they're they're discovering more and more every day about why they exist. Competition is a factor for some of these animals in the way that they're distributed. Competition with each other, reaching those physiological limits, uh, whether it be, you know, in the heat being the lower limit for some of these species and. In most cases, the upper limit is is normally a product of some type of competition, but the low limit in many cases is just, it's just too darn warm and they can't go any lower.
0: Right. Okay, and that, that limits their habitat then.
1: It does, and you know we've we've done some work, which, which pretty it's pretty neat. Again, thinking along these lines of atmospheric deposition, we know in the 70s and the 80s that acid rain was a was a pretty hot button topic. And we have some areas in the Appalachian Mountains, where and on, on these mountain peaks, you'll have soil readings of you know 2.5, 2.6, which is getting pretty close to battery acid. And yet we have plants living there. We have salamanders that are uh, living there. Things like the Weller salamander. They seem to be pretty adapted to these lower pH environments. They're nesting in red spruce logs, which is uh, somewhat of an acidic environment. So it's kind of interesting. One of the hypotheses we have is as these soils have become more acidic due to our pollution, for some species that can't tolerate it, it's pushed them down the mountain. But other things like wellers, which we perceive to be you know quite rare, it's opened the door to them. It's eliminated some of the competition and allowed them to move downslope slope, because they're more adaptive, uh, more adapted to the lower pH environments. Would you say they're thriving? Um, I know some of the transects that again, you know we've done a little bit on Rome, but some of the stuff we've done on white top at high elevations, the weller salamander is the most abundant salamander on our on our transects. So um, they're doing quite well.
0: <laughs> that leads a whole, I mean, throws some theories out of the out of the way then because of the acid like you said the acid rain and then these fragile salamanders have adapted or have always been in that acidic environment
1: it, it is that it's they were potentially going to be uh they were a candidate, they were petitioned by a group to be listed as by the fish and wildlife services either threatened or are potentially endangered and some of our research showed that, that actually that's, that's not the case currently. Now the downside of all this is when we've modeled what's going to happen by 2060, when we experience the warming in the next 40 to, to 60 years that we're going to be experiencing, the picture starts to turn a different route. The salamanders like Wellers and salamanders like the northern pygmy salamander are, are going to be in trouble as we start obtaining the warming that's being predicted. So they're doing great right now better than they ever have, but the next 50-60 years could be an, an actual turn there where they're going to their numbers should start declining, their range will contract considerably. Related to the moisture level? Well, the, the temperature which is then affecting moisture. Right. And there's so many variables that are in this that some folks are really trying to look at modeling, but to be honest, it it's really hard to, to grasp what's going to happen. As the temperature warms and maybe moisture patterns change, as we see the forest start to change, there's going to be a period in there where we might lose some canopy. And as the canopy opens up, that's going to let even more more light come into the forest floor, which means it's going to get even hotter and drier. Right. The other option of that is there's some models that show the Appalachians becoming wetter. And a wetter southern Appalachians means it's a greater buffer for these warming temperatures. So the effect might not be as bad if we actually start getting more moisture than we're used to getting. So there's a lot of factors that that kind of play into what's going to happen to these animals.
0: And your your studies are keeping a close eye on on all of these populations.
1: Right, right. Yes. We're, we're, you know, we've set up these patterns. Again, Jim Morgan originally established them in the late 50s, and now we've got these on a, on a cycle. So hopefully every 10 years they're going to be resurveyed. So that will give us a chance to detect any of these changes early and potentially you know, look at some possibilities for mitigation. That's not always the. Uh, you know, there's a lot of proposed ways to mitigate climate change, and some of those, in, in really, when you're dealing with salamanders, are just not too feasible. If we get an early, early notice of it, at least it will give us time to look at things like captive breeding. There's a lot of work that's being done with some of these animals now to to maintain populations in captive environments, with the thought that whatever happens happens at some point. If it stabilizes and maybe improves, you then have animals that can be reintroduced into their uh, their native range.
0: Right. Wow. Now, are you doing any of the captive breeding at Virginia Highlands?
1: We are not doing captive breeding at Virginia Highlands. We work with some folks that used to be at the Toledo, Ohio Zoo and uh, with some of their captive breeding uh, projects they have. And there are many, many zoos now that are starting to incorporate plethodontid salamanders, the uh, Smithsonian. The National Zoo in D.C. is doing a lot with uh, several species of of plethodon and salamanders. With the idea of, as zoos are so good at doing, of maintaining these things in a captive environment until hopefully the, you know, the, the, climate or, or habitat improves that they could be reintroduced. And again, this is more of an insurance policy. Right now, in many cases, they're thriving. But if we do end up get the, getting that warming and that's predicted and looks like it's occurring pretty quickly, then we can maintain the population and hopefully reintroduce them at some point in the future.
0: Wow, that's quite an ambitious undertaking there.
1: It's, uh, there's a lot of folks. You know, it's not one or two people. There are uh, researchers at, at so many institutions throughout the southeast and, and throughout the country, but especially the southeast, that are really, really focusing on what can be done to hopefully help these treasures that we have.
0: Right. Now, are they coming to uh, White Top or the Smokies to get their, um, what do you call it, their breeding stock?
1: There are there depending you know different states have different regulations on on that, so some areas with their permitting are uh, a little more supportive of of these type efforts. So basically, we see individuals being taken you know throughout the Southern Appalachians, many many different states to to be moved in this captive breeding project.
0: Golly, that's I didn't even think of that. That's amazing to consider the forethought that people have in keeping the salamanders. Uh, viable species around here.
1: Well, you know, one of the problems, uh, if, you, if you look at freshwater mussels, that I, I think, and I tell my students they're a great example, freshwater mussels, again, the southern Appalachians, the eastern, kind of southeastern U.S., rivers like the Clinch River and, and others that we have in southwest Virginia and in eastern Tennessee, uh, northern Georgia, northern Alabama, are just fantastic for freshwater mussels, they were. Well, everything that occurred in the 1800s on, really after the industrial revolution in agriculture, those mussel populations crashed. Well, at that point, then, thought was, well, how can we bring them back? Well, now there are great efforts in both Virginia and Tennessee to breed these mussels in captivity and reintroduce them into watersheds that have been stabilized and are no longer you know, imperiled. The problem is it took ten years to really learn how to do that and thought was that before these animals get in in major peril if we can figure out how to breed them in captivity then if they ever do become imperiled you immediately can jump in and, and take care of take care of things shockingly many of these species are incredibly easy to breed in captivity
0: the salamanders yeah, the
1: salamanders you would think again you know, and I always don't like to give people the wrong impression they're they're interesting animals and they are fragile in some ways because of the way they exchange gas but in other ways these things the ones that we have left are are tanks they are they can be very very tough they're tanks. They can be tanks. They can. They can. They are tough. I mean, really, you know. And that's the misconception okay. a lot of people will have is they'll think, "Oh my goodness, you know, if I walk on the forest floor, am I crushing them?" Well, you don't weigh as much as a black bear does, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, they're, they're tough. Now, if you go out and dump hydrochloric acid on them, that's a different story. If you go out and and cut down a good chunk of the forest and really expose the whole thing to light, that could be a problem. You go in and you selectively take out a few trees, the population typically is going to hang on and, and do just fine. So they're a lot tougher than people think, but at the same time, if we experience major warming, that's going to be something that they could really throw them a curve. Tanks. (laughs)
0: tanks. <laughs> That's not a description I would use for salamanders, but I think I might have to get used to that.
1: Well, a that lot of people they you know they don't they cringe when you say that. You're like, "Oh, you And I mean obviously we're careful. I don't want to give the wrong picture. We're very careful with these animals. We take immense care to ensure their safety in our research." Sure. But at the same time, They just are not as as fragile as people think. And in our talk, um, the talk I'll give on Saturday for the Natural Rally, one of the things that's interesting is to look at pictures of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park from the early 1900s. This is the area where we have the greatest diversity of salamanders. They're known for that. And if you look at it, it looks like a bomb has gone off. I mean, every tree has been cut. Now, what a lot of us feel is, is that the animals we see, because really a lot of what went on with plethodon and salamanders got started in the early 1900s. The sad thing is what we are seeing are truly the tanks. The more fragile species probably never made it through that deforestation. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. So we're seeing, you know, odds are there were many other species that were probably here that we, you know, we have no proof of that, right? But there are probably other species that just could not handle the habitat impact that occurred when, when Europeans really started expanding. So we're left with, with the tanks.
0: <laughs> wow. Given that the salamanders are not really adapted to long migrations, they've got to stay near the moisture. Yeah, I can see where they would be wiped out in, if it was a specific Smoky Mountain species. Could there be remnant populations of them?
1: No one's found them. You know, we we just had some folks, Todd Pearson, a few other folks, just a few years ago, discovered a new species of salamander right on the um, in northern Georgia. The Patchno salamander, new plethodon, and totally new to science. Not that it was split through genetics. This was a species that maybe uh, had been overlooked because it looked very similar to another another species. But uh, there could be. We've got things like the Shenandoah salamander um, that, when you move up up towards the Shenandoah National Park, that literally is on just a couple of mountains. That's it. As we move a little farther south, we've got the Pigeon Mountain salamander, which again is just found in in a couple locations. So we know that there are what we don't know is did that population, was it much greater at one time or was it, was it always reduced? Okay. That's the question. You mentioned home range or, or migration. Most of these plethodonids have home ranges that are somewhere along the lines of 10, 15 square meters. Wow. So they might spend their entire 25-year life literally in an area about the size of the room or office you might be sitting in right now. So, because of that, they don't have the ability. The birders, uh, you know, they're so lucky because if there's problems, their guys can fly somewhere else and maybe find the right habitat. Right. These salamanders, if there is truly an issue that makes that area no longer inhabitable, they're stuck. They just can't go very far.
0: Okay, so now when I look at the picture of the Smokies in their deforestation lumbering period, that's a lot of species that could have been just eliminated right there. Gosh.
1: Potential. Potentially.
0: Right. How many meters square?
1: Um, you know, it varies per species, but on average, if you say around 15 square meters, that's going to be pretty, I mean, that's going to be, in some cases, a pretty wide berth for a lot of them
0: i I just hadn't realized that. I was thinking maybe just the cove or the this side of the mountain kind of stuff, right. And you said a twenty five year potential lifespan.
1: Exactly. Some of our big plethodontids, it's thought they can go 25, maybe maybe 30 years.
0: But there, there's your tank example right there.
1: <laughs> there's, there's your tank. You know, again, and it's it's one of those things, of the, but then you have the potential of a disease coming in. That's the chink in the armor on these tanks. Uh, there are certain pathogens that come in that they, they that's that's their Achilles heel. They, they can become infected with a pathogen, and that does them in very quickly. Or you can have some major event. It's interesting, some of the work in the Smokies that's going on now, some folks are redoing. Doing some work to see what impact the fires had it occurred just a couple years ago in the Smokies uh, especially at some of the high elevation peaks like the chimneys you know what happened to the salamander populations there and um, how much of an impact did it did it have on them
0: so were there specific chimney top salamander species
1: right yeah they're just in general there's not one that's just in, endemic to that particular area Right, But there were some folks that had been doing some surveys in that area just a couple of years prior to the fire, so it's going to be a great comparison. The Appalachians would burn. They're not as fire-prone as many other ecosystems, but they, they would burn. And obviously these animals have experienced at some point, we have some green salamander sites that we study in southwest Virginia that also burned during that bad fall we had. Right, And it's amazing that the salamanders are still there. I mean, we're talking some areas that went down to mineral soil. There is nothing organic in in some of the spots. It is down to nothing but rock. And on the rock faces, you still find the salamanders. So I guess you could maybe say they're fragile tanks. They have kryptonite, and their, their kryptonite can be problematic, but other than that, they can be pretty darn tough.
0: Good gosh. So, how in the world those survived that kind of
1: conflagration? You know, when you think about it, in the winter, they're going under the surface and they're escaping, you know, those, those really harsh temperatures. So, it, it's very probable that in, in heat, and the fact that we were already in the conditions to promote fire hot and dry. Right. In fact, the thought that many of them were up on the surface anyway was probably not really the case. Most of them probably were already bo- well below the surface just because of the conditions, which probably helped, helped their survival. The biggest problem is the leaf litter, that's where most of their food lives. Right. So when you pull off the leaf litter, you know, now you've got a problem, you know, we've got to get some more leaf litter to come down the next year and, and get, some, get some more food coming in there. They have such low metabolic requirements that they might cause them to skip a year of breeding or something, but the, their survival they can still they can still hang tough.
0: <laughs> well, I'm just cheering them on now. That's like incredible. <laughs> like go. <laughs> man well kevin i'm i am really looking forward to your presentation just totally fascinated with salamanders and now is even more fascinating
1: well listen i greatly appreciate the opportunity to come roan mountain's always been a a very special place to me and the work that goes on up there is is great so uh it'll be fun to talk about it and talk about some of the history too there's been some really good salamander studies on wellers that mm-hmm. have occurred in on Roan and in that immediate area. So yeah, we're I'm looking forward to seeing everyone at the rally and maybe sharing a little, a uh, little bit of our passion we have for these animals.
0: Absolutely. Oh, before we go, I noticed one more thing on the schedule is a 9 p.m. salamander walk.
1: That's right. After the talk, Larry and others had asked, they say typically, you know, the speaker leads a hike. And I said, let's do it. And uh, one of the best times to observe these animals is at night. In many cases, especially if the moisture conditions are right, they will be out and about. So it's not even a matter of, of having to go turn over rocks or logs to look for them. They'll, they will be sitting out on the surface and we can actually look at them as, as you normally would find them. So right after the talk on Saturday night, we're going to do a walk to see what to what animals we might be able to encounter.
0: Wow. All right. I'm up for that. Let's do that. <laughs> Just bring exciting. a
1: flashlight, and uh, hopefully, it, this is one of the, lots of folks, pe- lots of times people don't want bad weather, but this is one time if it was 55 degrees, 60 degrees and raining that Saturday night, it would be perfect.
0: It, going out even in the rain would do it?
1: Oh, rain's perfect. No, rain, rain makes it even better. Yes.
0: Great. <laughs> I hardly ever wish for rain during the rally but uh, that that could be really interesting there.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, just a brief hour and a half. Just give us an hour <laughs> and a half of rain and we'll be happy. <laughs> oh, so now they would come out? They not... They're out. E- even if it's not raining, they'll be out. But when you get the heavy, you know, a good, warm, heavy rain at night, um, your numbers can jump up. We've had as many, you know, you can go 100 meters on a trail, and uh, we've had some counts approaching eight, nine 900,000 individuals without ever turning a rock or a log. Oh, pretty, my gosh. I mean, the forest floor literally will look like it's moving um, if you get you know and if we need this early in the season that's more into june july this early in the season if we had seven eight days leading up to the rally of really warm temperatures really good rains high humidities then then that could happen you would be shocked at the number of animals you might see just sitting out doing their thing
0: (laughs) well i will come prepared to be shocked i'm looking forward to this (laughs) golly kevin thank you uh,
1: Oh, absolutely! Appreciate the opportunity, and I'm looking uh, looking forward to seeing everyone at the rally.
0: Fantastic! We'll see you then. I guess you can really tell I enjoyed the conversation about the salamanders. It just—I think it's fascinating. The more I learn about things, and the Friends of Road Mountain Naturalist Rally is the place to learn more about the outdoors it's a great outdoor experience for the whole family i think it's the best value in outdoor education anywhere around so check it out friends of Mountain.org for the rally there's a special kids page i printed up picking out all of the saturday activities that's saturday april the 28th the kid friendly hikes the kid friendly activities it'll be a great time to bring the whole family out Okay, that's it for this edition of Roan Mountain Radio. I'm Ken Turner. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the
1: mountain.